This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, we have some in the back uh, that we'd be happy to get to you. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and chapter 3 is the third chapter of that book. As you make your way to Genesis chapter 3, I, I wonder if I were to ask you about your life, say, tell me something of your story, you would probably begin to tell me uh, different things that happened that marked significant moments of your history. I was born here at this date. Then this happened, and then that happened, right? When we try to get to know someone, we try to ask questions to draw out a little bit more about their story, about their history, because that's part of how we get to know someone. In order to know someone, you need to know a little bit about where they, where they came from, about the events that made them into the person that they are today. I say that to say this, that I think one of the challenges facing Christianity right now, or at least Christianity here in America, is that we've gotten lazy a little bit with knowing Jesus' story, with knowing his history. I often hear the phrase of Jesus saying leverage to be like, well, th- this is how my Jesus is, or my Jesus will never do this, or my Jesus will never do that. And we've created this kind of privatized, self-defined version of Jesus. But Jesus is a real person. He's not your Jesus that you get to make up things about. No, he's, he's someone who has a story, and someone who has a history, and we don't get to change who he is. We are meant to be changed by who he is. He's a real person. And his story starts well before the day of his birth that we celebrate on Christmas. If we're going to know something about Jesus, we need to know not just disconnected things about him that we can reshape in any way we want. We need to know where he comes from. We, we, we need to know something of his history that, again, started well before that day in Bethlehem that he actually gave birth. And friends, there is nothing more important than knowing Jesus. Jesus said to know him is to know life. And so for this Advent season, we're going to go through a sermon series where we're going to look at various moments of history that happened long before Jesus came to earth, but are all part of his story and part of knowing who he actually is. We just finished up a series on the kingdom of God, and as we were making our preaching schedule as a pastoral team several months ago, we thought uh, this series would be a good way to follow. We're calling it the coming of the king. The coming of the king. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 16. As we get ready to read that, I want to give you some background for what we're about to read. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 shows God creating the world as a perfect paradise providing for every single one of the needs of the first human, Adam and Eve. God God even provided for their need to live in a relationship with him. Just as a parent takes care of their child and seeks to lead them in what is good and protect them from what will do them harm, that's part of how a parent loves their child, we see right in Genesis chapter 2 that that's how God loves his people. He, He gives Adam and Eve this paradise which includes even the blessing of him telling them what is good and him telling them what to stay away from so that they might know his heart of love. They had everything 
take this again from chapter 3. I'm going to read in verse 1 of chapter 13. This is inspired, infallible, inerrant, word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and there was delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He asked, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? God, I pray that you be with us as we open up your word and as we seek to hear what you have to say. May the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words to be written now be given to us in a fresh way that we might hear what you have to say. We need your help, Lord God. I need your help. And so I pray that you would be with us and that you would speak to us for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. The story that we just read is known as the fall. It is the moment when rebellion against God, what the Bible calls sin, when sin entered the world and made this world a cursed place. In order to understand Jesus, We have to understand something about this curse. Because as the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, says, He came to make His blessings flow, for as the curse is found. And so that's why I've entitled this morning's sermon, For as the curse is found. For as the curse is found. And I want us to see this morning the cause of the curse, and then I want us to see the conqueror of the curse. The cause of the curse, and the conqueror of the curse. First, the cause of the curse. 
verse 1 tells us that into this paradise that God had made came a serpent. Now, we know who the serpent is because the God who inspired Genesis to be written is the same God who inspired Revelations to be written. In the book of Revelations, we read about who this serpent is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. It says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. So the serpent is Satan. The enemy of God, who Revelation 12 also tells us, had tried to lead a rebellion against God in heaven, but was thrown out as a result for doing so. And when he was thrown out of heaven, he came down to earth as a serpent to talk to Adam and Eve. I say Adam and Eve because even though the serpent's conversation was with Eve, verse 6 tells us that her husband, meaning Adam, was with her. And so this serpent starts to tempt them, and notice how he does so. He says in verse 1, did God actually say, you can't eat of that tree? Notice what he's doing there. He's pointing out the one thing, the only thing that God actually told them to stay away from. Like, they had a whole garden. God had provided for their every need. But Satan loves to talk about God relevant to what God says we can't have. He loves to say, can you really believe that God would say something so oppressive as that? Friends, we need to understand that the the idea that the Bible is retrograde, the idea that the Bible is on the wrong side of history, like that's not a new idea. Satan's been questioning the word of God since the dawn of time and trying to make God sound bad and look bad. He's always trying to make God look like he's holding out on us so that we reject God and go do our own thing. He questions the word of God. And notice, he doesn't just question the word of God. He also questions the character of God. He says, did God really say? Now, what's interesting about this is that up until that point, every interaction that God has with Adam and Eve in chapter 2, God is referred to as the Lord, all caps, God. There's a point trying to be made here. Look at verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the dust of the man. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a a garden in Eden. Look at verse 9. And now the ground the Lord God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree, every tree in the garden, except for the tree of good and evil. Look at verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took up one of the ribs and closed it up with its flesh. Look at verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God made, he t- turned into woman and brought her to man. Right, there's a point again and again and again. The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And whenever you see that word Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh. This name of God, Yahweh, is known as the covenantal name of God. Covenant means an unbreakable promise. This This is what theologians would call the relational name of God. The name that shows that God loves his people and will love them forever as his unbreakable promise to them. And so see what Satan is doing here. He is conveniently leaving the relational part of God out. 
Listen, Satan has no problem with people acknowledging God. He's got no problem with people believing that there's some kind of God up there, some kind of higher power out there. He's got no problem with religion. He just doesn't want us to, for one second, think that we can actually have a relationship with this God. And so he makes God's words sound oppressive. And then he makes God seem unreachable. He makes God seem abstract. Not a being that Adam and Eve actually knew. Not a being that actually could love. It's really true what verse 1 says, that Satan is the most crafty thing in existence. And let's be clear, he hasn't stopped being crafty. He's been watching humanity for thousands of years now. He's been watching you. One of the things that sports teams do to beat their opponents is that they watch game film on them. Right? They, they look at previous plays that they've run so that they can see their tendencies, so they can try to understand their weaknesses, so that they can exploit those things and defeat them. Here's what you need to understand. Satan has game film on your life. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your particular areas of temptation, and he knows how to slither right on up to that part of your life. And the dirtiest trick of all in our culture is that we don't even acknowledge that he exists. Like, we don't believe in evil spirits. We don't believe in powers of darkness. What Genesis chapter 3 tells us about, what we see is crazy talk, and we call it prehistoric, and Satan's got us exactly where he wants us. Friends, we need to wake up. We need to understand that we have an enemy who wants to take us out. And whatever right now is keeping you from God, whatever is disrupting your relationship, your fellowship with him, whether it be through his word or through having time in prayer or through confessing your sins or through spending time with his people and, and gathering as a, as a church on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, whatever tempts you to be bitter or discouraged, anxious or fearful, anything that distracts you from living the life of a Christian, that's Satan's plan of attack on your life. It could look like something good, like a job promotion. Just something that's going to make you too busy. It could be a bout of depression that, like, I just need to stay home and self-isolate. It could be having your kids involved in so many things that you're just constantly on the go and running around. It could be a hobby. It could be a hurt. Satan's plans of attack are as unique as we are. And so the question I want to ask you is, what's his game film on you? What are the areas of temptation that you are prone to, that keep you from living the life that God's called you to live as his beloved child. Be aware. Be ready. We've got someone crafty coming after us. Satan questions God's word, he questions God's character, and then in verse 4, he holds out this lie. He directly contradicts God. God said, hey, if you eat this tree, you're going to die. He says in verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God said, if you disobey me, then you won't be able to be with me. Right? Death is not just a physical thing in the Bible. Death is spiritual separation from the God of life. And Satan's like, well, that's not true. He lies by minimizing the consequences of sin. This really isn't that big a deal. And look what you get. You get to be like God. Notice what he's doing there. 
He's offering them a life of self-autonomy. You don't have to answer to God. He's saying you can be your own God. But like a magician, he is distracting them from what he's really doing so that he can pull a trick out of his hat. He's distracting them, right? Be your own God. Be your own God. Isn't that going to be great? And here's the trick. If you're your own God, then you can't have a relationship anymore with the one who truly is God. Satan was trying to say, hey, th this is the way to better, to better life. But the trick he's playing on them is he's really leading them into being spiritual orphans. He's severing their relationship with their father, with Yahweh, the Lord, who loved them. And tragically, they listen. And that caused the curse of sin to enter this world. We need to understand, sin is not just the individual things that we do. It's a whole systemic issue that our world has. Sin is why there are natural disasters. There's actually nothing natural about disasters at all. In the perfect world that God made, there weren't tsunamis. There weren't diseases. There weren't mental health challenges. There was no systemic oppression of the poor or racism or human trafficking or world hunger. No, all was right and good. But like a drop of food dye being added to a cup of water, sin has entered this world and colored everything. We live in a cursed place. And the worst part of it is that our relationship with God has been disrupted. Notice, after Adam and Eve sin, God comes looking for them. And they go hiding behind some trees. Now, it doesn't make a ton of sense to go hiding behind some trees from the one who made the trees. Uh, but sin makes you do stupid things. And really what's going on here is they are hiding because they feel ashamed. They just can't face the God they have betrayed. And so instead of a relationship with God, there's now separation between them and God. But notice, God calls out to them. Because God loves them and he loves us too much to leave us in our mess. He calls out to them and says, what happened? Now he knows what happened, but he's giving them an opportunity to confess so that they might receive his forgiveness and grace. And yet that's not what they do. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Now think about how crazy this is. God had created a perfect world for them to live in, a paradise. And even in paradise, they can still find someone else to blame for their problems. And isn't this temptation still in front of us today? It's not my fault. This is what's happening with this politician. It's not my fault. This was my upbringing. It's not my fault. This, this thing happened to me. And nothing changes in our world because no one wants to take responsibility in our world. Now, both Adam and Eve's statements were, were true. Someone else was involved in their temptation to sin. But it was only partially true. The whole truth is that their actions and our actions are ours alone to make. There might be situations that provide explanations for why we're tempted in certain ways, but no explanation of temptation is an excuse for sin. Here's what we need to understand in our, I, you know, everything around me is what made me and I can't, I'm not controlled for myself. No, no, here's what we need to understand. The Bible holds out to us that our response is always our responsibility. Our response is always our responsibility. 
So God holds both Adam and Eve responsible for the response to the temptation that they face. He doesn't say, oh, okay, well, that, that explains it then. And your explanation now becomes an excuse for your sin. He doesn't play that game. He holds them responsible for the response they had to the temptation that was put in front of them. Listen, friends, we are never captives to what happens around us or what happens to us. We always have the ability and indeed the responsibility to make choices to follow God. And and, in many ways, this actually dignifies us. This empowers us. Because this means that my situations can't control me. No one else besides me gets to define me. It's a very empowering idea, a very empowering statement. We are our own person. And yet, this also places a burden upon us. Because as we all know, we often make the wrong choices. And so we can't blame anything else other than me. Then what are we going to do with that? Well, as my preaching professor would say, I've got some gospel for that. I've got some gospel for that. And so let's look at the good news. Let's look at the gospel. We've seen the cause of the curse. Now let's look at the conqueror, the conqueror of the curse. In verse 15, God says this to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called by theologians the Proto-Evangelion, the very first gospel, the very first good news given in the Bible. It's God promising that there would be one who would come who would be bruised by Satan but would ultimately defeat Satan. It gets hurt. It'll hurt you to be bruised on your heel. I've had a heel bruise one time, and it's a very painful thing. But it'll kill you to get bruised on your head. Now, we need to understand that what's happening here and what, what's, what Satan's response to this, we need to understand that in many ways, this sets up the whole rest of the story of the Bible. Like, if you're Satan and you hear this, you hear this, God saying this to you, uh, what is your response going to be? Think, think about it this way. If you hear this morning that there's someone out front who wants to beat you up, I don't think there is, but just play along. Um, you have one or two responses to that, don't you? On the one hand, you could try to run out the side door and flee so that they can't find you. Or you could try to sneak out there, try to get to them first and sucker punch them so then you're safe, right? You could flee or you could fight. Satan is a fighter and not a fleer. And so what we see right in Genesis chapter 4 is that he, he is constantly now on a mission. Ever since Genesis 3.15, Satan goes on a mission to try to kill the seed of the woman. And so in Genesis chapter 4, he tempts Cain to kill the righteous brother Abel. If he, if he can kill the seed, then the seed won't be able to get him. And so Cain kills Abel. Murder enters the world. In Genesis chapter 6, he leads the world to be so wicked that God has to wipe out the whole world in a flood. And then we see Esau try to kill Jacob. And then we see Pharaoh. Uh, he does kill all the male Jews during the time of Moses. Then we see King Saul try to kill the promised king David. And then we see the Persian king, uh, prince Haman. He creates an edict to have all the Jews exterminated. Right? What we're seeing throughout the whole Old Testament, you're not going to understand the Old Testament if you don't get this. Throughout, throughout the whole Old Testament, we're seeing that Satan is constantly trying to kill the potential seed of the woman. He's trying to strike first. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And Satan sees the plan of God now really starting to come into view. Because Jesus was born of a virgin. 
And so he truly was the first person to ever be the seed of a woman. No man was involved in bringing him about. And so God did a miracle and he created life out of nothing. Jesus had to be born of a woman because he had to be truly human. And yet he had no earthly father because he is also truly God. And so he comes as a seed of a woman and he's born in Bethlehem. And Satan rises up the evil King Herod. Herod hears that a king has been born in Bethlehem. And since he wants no rivals to his throne, he orders all the Jewish boys under the age of two to be killed in that place. God warns Joseph, Jesus' adopted earthly father in a dream, and he takes Jesus, they flee to Egypt. Satan's plan doesn't work. But then when Jesus grows up and begins his ministry, who's the first being that he faces? Satan, as he goes out into the desert. Satan tries to get him when he, Jesus, is alone and weary. That doesn't work. Satan then tries to convince a mob at one point to throw Jesus off a mountain. That doesn't work. Jesus just walks straight through them. He even tries to work through some of Jesus' followers. Right? Peter tries at one point to convince Jesus not to go to Jerusalem to be the Savior. And what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say anything about Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. But then in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, we're told that Satan enters Judas. And Judas goes and he betrays Jesus. And Jesus is captured and taken away and sentenced to be executed on a cross. And so the seed came and the seed was put to death. Satan is now safe and can rule and destroy humanity at will. But he does not realize that God was going to use Jesus' death to bring about his demise. See, Jesus' death was like a bruising on his heel. It hurt him, but it did not end him. Because early Sunday morning, that stone began to shake. And light brighter than the sun burst forth from the grave. And Jesus emerged as the firstborn from the dead. See, on the cross, he had done all that was necessary for our sins to be paid for. And so there remained no reason for him to stay in that grave. And so he arose and he came out with our salvation in his hand. But friends, here's what we have to understand. That salvation that Christ brings... It's so much more than how we typically think about it in our evangelical circles. It's so much more than just a personal forgiveness for my personal sins. It is that, praise God, that's true and that's glorious. We need to understand that in the backdrop of Genesis 3, in all the previous history that came before, we need to see that Jesus' death has done something so much more than just dying for your forgiveness. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, Jesus has come to be the conqueror of the curse. He is the one who was bruised by Satan, but would ultimately bring an end to Satan and crush him under his feet. And he has started this in his first coming, and he will end it at his second coming. He started in his first coming. Satan is finished 
but he will be truly brought to an end at Jesus' second coming. You see, Satan is very much like a snake. I killed a snake once, confession time. I'm actually usually a, a huge animal lover. I want her to fly, but we were on vacation, and there was a snake that was coiled underneath the stairs that my kids were going down to the pool. And so I love animals, but I love my children more. And so that snake had to go. And I was not going to just cast him off so that he could slither his way back up there. No, he had to be taken out. And so I got a shovel, and I chop off its head. Now, if you know anything about snakes, and I'm not exactly sure why. I guess it's because their adrenaline's still going over their nerve endings. They can be headless, and yet their body can still slither. And their head can still strike. Here's what we need to understand. The snake, it can be dead, and yet it can still also be deadly. It can be dead, and yet it can still also be deadly. When Jesus died on the cross, he decisively defeated Satan. In a very real sense, the snake is dead. But he is also still deadly. He can still strike. And so he's dead. He's dead in the sense that Satan has been robbed of his two great powers. Well, what did we see Satan doing in our passage in Genesis chapter 3? First, he deceived. He spoke lies about God, and he got Adam and Eve to believe those lies. And then second, he filled them with shame. And the name Satan means accuser. And so Satan's two great weapons are, he loves to lie to us to get us to sin, and then he loves to accuse us and say, look what a bad sinner you are. Lying and accusation, those are his weapons. But on the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to Satan's lies and his accusations. See, Satan is a liar. Jesus said he is the truth. And so Satan tries to lie to us now and say, God doesn't really love you. But we see the truth in Jesus, that God loves us so much he was willing to die for us. Satan tries to lie to us that sinning against God is going to be better than being obedient to God. But Jesus shows us the truth that the way of God is always best for us because there's a bloody cross that proves that God is always committed to what is best for us. Satan lies. You'll never be able to be free of that sin. Jesus is the truth. There is no sin you struggle with that he can't save you from. Satan lies. You can never bring that struggle out into the light because then everyone will hate you. Jesus is the truth that whoever confesses their sin and repents will be forgiven and restored. Satan tries to bring accusations. Do you see how much you've messed up? Jesus affirms, do you see how much I can forgive? Satan tries to bring the accusation that you are depressed. You are a weak person, an anxious person. You are someone who is trapped and defined by your sin. That's who you are. Jesus affirms, no, no, no. For anyone who is in me, you are a new creation. Satan accuses, you're an addict. You're lustful. You're faithless. You're selfish. And if people knew the real you, they'd reject you. But Jesus affirms saying, I know your deepest sins because I carry them on the cross. Jesus knows the real you, friends, and he has never second-guessed saving you. He knew what he was getting into full well, and he chose to die in your place. See, for every 
lie that Satan tells and every accusation that Satan brings, Jesus has destroyed that through what he's done for us on the cross and what he's proven through his resurrection. And so as the hymn says, his blood does speak a better word. And we need to have a broad view of salvation. We need to have a view that's much broader than just the forgiveness of our sins. We need to see the cosmic story of the conqueror who has come and the curse that has been defeated. Yes, Satan is still flopping around and his head can still bite. But we we live in between Jesus' first advent, his first coming, and his second. Jesus has come and he'll come again. And when he does, friends, then we need to know that, oh, Satan will be destroyed once and for all. Every vestige of evil that we see in this world will be forever removed from the new creation in Christ. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more war. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more tsunamis or shootings or trafficking. Evil will be removed and defeated once and for all as all things are made new in Jesus. And that paradise will never be lost. It was lost by the first Adam as he brought a curse upon humanity. But Jesus has conquered, and his victory over Satan can never be reversed and never be lost. And so we do say, as we experience the freedom Christ has for us now from Satan's lies and accusations, and as we look forward to the day when evil is removed from this place once and for all, we do say, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive his king. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as, for as, the curse is found. So as we come to a close, here's how I think we should apply this. Satan is defeated, but he can still be deadly. And so we need to learn how to resist his lies and flee from his accusations by saturating ourselves in the truth of Christ. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we saturate ourselves? How do we do what the Bible tells us? Renew our minds in Christ on a daily basis. How do we do that? Well, God loves us, and so he doesn't leave that up to us to guess. He tells us. First, we need community. You need community. Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says that we need to be together so we might not fall into the deceitfulness of sin. And so I just want to be very honest with you. You are only sporadically involved in the church community if you miss Sundays frequently. If you don't have strong relationships with people here who really know you, if you're often on the other side of the camera, then God's word would say to you, watch out. You're in danger. You're in danger. We need one another. Because God's created us to only be able to walk with him when we are roped to other Christians who are doing the same. Isolation is one of the most dangerous spiritual things that there is. We are never more prone to believing the lies of Satan or listening to his accusations than when we are by ourselves. We need community. We need community. Second, we need to be in God's word. We need to be in God's word. Satan's lies are everywhere, friends, we go around. It's just the air that we breathe. And the words that we take in will be the words that shape our world. We are affected by what we listen to. And so we're constantly listening to lies all day. This is why we need to start every day with what is the truth. Jesus said that his word is to be our daily bread. He wasn't joking about that. We need to eat it and feed on it every day. What happens on a day that you don't eat? You feel weak. 
If you're like me, you feel a little cranky, right? Being hangry is a real thing, right? Like we need to eat on a daily basis. Friends, we need God's word on a daily basis. We need God's word first thing on a daily basis. I don't know about you, but I can't go through a day not being shaped by the truth of God's word. Some people are like, well, I like to read the Bible at the end of the day. I hope you read it at the end of the day. Also, we read the beginning of the day. I hope you read the beginning of the day. I don't know, maybe you have a superpower that I don't, but, but like, I need God's word in the morning. Psalm Austin talks about, Lord, in the morning I seek your face, Psalm 94. I do think there's something about starting our day with the word of God, which you know what that means? That doesn't mean actually trying just to get up earlier. That actually means starting your night by being obedient and going to bed at a good time. Turn off that Netflix show, shut, shut down YouTube, get in bed so you can get up and be with the Lord. We need community. We need the Bible. We need prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 tells us to pray without ceasing. Now, I don't think that means that like we're to take a bunch of Red Bull and put toothpicks in our eyes so we never fall asleep and like we're praying all the time, right? Like we're not meant to be a bunch of you know spiritual insomniacs and weirdos. No, what this is saying is that we should be constantly talking with God throughout the day. We should be constantly talking with God throughout the day. We see in Jesus' prayer, like, excuse me, we see Jesus regularly withdrew. For times, just for him to pray privately between him and God, it's good to have focused times of prayer. We see that he often prayed with his disciples. It's good to have community times of prayer. And then we see that sometimes he would just pray at a drop of hat. Something would happen, and he would just jump into a prayer out of nowhere. We need those spontaneous times, times of prayer at the same time. We need this constant communication with God if we want to stay centered on God and not be captured by the lies or accusations of Satan. We need community. We need Bible. We need prayer. And friends, we need confession. We need confession. We're not going to be perfect. We are going to fail. But please hear me on this. Our failures only defeat us when they stay hidden. But when we bring them into the light, when we confess our sins, that's when we open ourselves up to receive the forgiveness of grace of God and the power to actually change. You can never repent of a sin that you have not first confessed. You need to bring it into the light. Keeping it hidden is denying the power of God and, and not having faith in the power of God that he can forgive. And so how are you going to try to defeat a sin that you don't even think God can forgive you of? We start with confession, and that's what empowers our repentance. And friends, as we are a church that, Lord willing, I hope that, like, I don't know, I mean, if you're like me, like, I have to confess sins, like, often. You know, like, this is not like a once-a-year thing. Like, I get together with, with guys on a regular basis and say, here's why I'm struggling right now. I need your help. Right? I do that all the time. I do that on a weekly basis. I sin on a daily basis, but you know, I don't have time every single day to talk to somebody. But, so on a weekly basis, I get, hey, here's what's going on in my heart. And just open myself up. And by God's grace, you know what happens when we do that? James 5.16 says that when you confess our sins to one another, there is healing in that. You know, just confessing to God is still keeping it hidden. It's when we confess our sins to one another that we open ourselves up to allow other people to embody to us the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. Let's be very clear here, friends. There's never to be a cancel culture in the church. Because God has not and will not ever cancel us. And so we always meet confession with grace. We love big because we've been loved big. And so as we bring this in for a close, Christ Church, I, I really need you to hear me on this. Satan is going to lie to you today. And he's going to try to accuse you. He will try to strike. But you need to know he's a headless snake. We live in a sin-cursed world. 
but we have a conqueror who has won. And he doesn't ask us to fight for our freedom. He invites us to fight for faith in the freedom that he's already purchased for us. And we fight that with community. We fight that by being in his word. We fight that by being consistent in prayer. We fight that through confession of our sins, believing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Friends, there is a curse, but there is a conqueror. So this week, don't fall prey to Satan's lies or accusations, but walk out life in Jesus' victory. And keep doing that until the Lord calls you home or until he brings, comes again. Let's pray.